If you've not done so already, let's turn our Bibles to Psalm number 80. And if you're using the Black Pew Bibles, that's going to be found on page 460. This might be news to some of you, but happy 10-year anniversary, Embassy Church, as it relates to the conception of our first ever meeting as a church. September the 7th, so this past Thursday, marks the specific day, and earlier this week I shared a little article reminder of the things I said in the very first meeting as we gathered in Sam and Erica's living room. And one promise I made to the group of folks that gathered together in that living room was, if we start a church together, if God would have us be able to do that, and I were to serve as your primary teaching pastor, my promise would be that I would see myself as a tour guide of the scriptures. And like a good tour guide, the aim is not for you to think about me at the end of the guide, but rather to think about the beauty that the tour guide is leading you to. So this summer I was able to go to a national park. Tour guides were taking groups of people to hot spot picture Instagram moment scenes. And I think of myself like that. I would like to serve you by getting out of the way for you to capture the moment that is the glory of God in the face of Christ in Psalm 80. We're going to continue our tour of book three. And my hope is that by the end of it, you won't be thinking much about me, but you'll be thinking much about the beauty of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So let's turn our attention now to the words of God on page 460, Psalm number 80. I'm going to read the text for us and explain how I believe this psalm is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord, Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nation, the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine the stock that your right hand planted, 
and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Psalm 80 exists to teach us three things. It teaches us to lament, it teaches us to repent, and it teaches us to turn our eyes to Christ in our repentance. I'd like to organize this message in those three categories. I think Psalm 80 exists to teach us to lament, to repent, and turn to the face of Christ in our repentance. So first, Psalm 80 is a prayer of lament. Lament is something you do when you experience loss. So on this first kind of walk through Psalm 80, I'd like you to just observe with me the four sections of the psalm and the different losses that the people of God are experiencing. So the the four sections are pretty obvious, especially if you're reading this in the original language, but you can see it in English. It's pretty clear. Look at verse 3. The word, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Do you notice verse 7, that it's repeated almost exactly, word for word. And then that same word, restore or turn, appears again in verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. And then finally, fourthly, verse 19, restore us, O Lord of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. There's three almost identical refrains in verse 3, verse 7, and verse 19, but then there's a twist in verse 14. But either way, these key words are repeated to give you your four sections. So first, this psalm teaches us to lament. And look at the first section, verses 1 through 3. What are they lamenting? The lamenting loss, the loss of God's shepherd-like guidance and presence. They're lamenting the loss of God's leadership in their life. This is what is being clearly explained by, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, who lead Joseph like a flock. And then there's a reference to his presence above the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies on the cherubim. Shine your presence. So God's presence is a guiding presence in verse 1. And they're asking for it to return because they've lost it, which is why then in verse 2 you have another reference to God's guiding presence. And it's cryptic, so if you're not familiar with all the tribes and history of the nation of Israel, you might be lost. But that's why I'm here. I'm your tour guide. Let me point out verse 2. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, They were literally before the Ark of the Covenant that was just referenced in the last half of the verse. Meaning, they marched with the nation of the 12 tribes right behind the cherubim that was referenced in this Ark of the Covenant. So when God's people were moving around, these three tribes were a unit together and they were guided by the presence of God. I think it's kind of clear already, don't you? They're lamenting the loss of God's guiding presence. And they're asking for it back. Come, stir up your might. Save us. Save us in a specific way, though. Save us to give us guidance. Guide us by your powerful presence. Restore. Shine your face 
so we'd be saved. That's section one, the lamenting the loss of God's guiding presence. Section two, verses four to seven, they're lamenting the loss of God's listening love. O God of hosts, verse four, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? If you're new to the Bible, you may think that this is odd, but God at times is described as someone who plugs his ears to the prayers of his people. And I'll explain a little bit more as to why. It's fitting. But Isaiah chapter 1 would be a good cross-reference if you want to just jot that down. Isaiah 1 explains specific reasons why at times God says, I am not listening to your prayers. And that's what's being referenced here. So they're losing God's listening love. Instead, they have his back turned, and he's asking, they're asking, Asaph and the people, God, we want you to listen again. How long are you going to just turn your back to us and close your ears? Listen to our prayers. And then notice the, the suffering they're experiencing in verses 5 and 6. The feeding with the bread of tears is just showing that they are just drinking down their tears. They're suffering and in great turmoil. So they're experiencing all kinds of loss, but it's connected to the loss of God hearing their prayers. And then they're being made fun of by their neighbors. The enemies laugh at them. So God, restore us. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine upon us that we may be saved and that you would listen to us again. So if the first loss and lament is a loss of his guiding presence, I think the second is his listening love. Third, look at verses 8 to 14, and notice this vine imagery that concludes with verses 14, turn. But this time it's not turn us, it's you turn, God. What we have here is God's protection that has been removed So it begins gloriously. Look at verse 8 and 9. You brought out a vine from Egypt. This is about the book of Exodus, how God brought a people from slavery out of slavery and into the promised land. That's what verse 8 summarizes. Then verse 9. You cleared the ground. And this is the book of Joshua at this point. You cleared the ground. You made a way and you established deep roots. So this is about the nation of Israel being described as God plucking up a vine and relocating it out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan. And then notice how glorious this vine is. I don't know if any of you like vines. My wife is not a fan of vines crawling over all of our house, and so we cut them down. In this case, you have a cutting down, but it was glorious. It was beautiful. Look at verse 10. The mountains were covered with the shade from this vine. This is a massive vine, and it's poetry, so it's not literally we're imagining a vine that goes up above mountains. We're just picturing the extent of the fruit of the goodness of the way God has blessed these people in the land of Canaan. The mighty cedars are covered by the branches of this vine, and it was sent out all the way to the sea, to the river, basically all the corners of the earth, from as high of heights to to the furthest, deepest valleys you can imagine. God has established a people, metaphorically described as a vine, and they have prospered. More than likely, he's talking about Solomon's reign when they were the stuff from a political power. They had wealth and the nations were flocking to them because they had God's powerful presence. But notice that when God's hands are removed, like the walls that are being described here, I'm not going to protect you anymore. They lament. And they say, God, turn back. 
Why then have you broken down the walls that were surrounding this beautiful vine? So now people walk along the way and they just pluck its fruit. And it's basically a reference to, to being pillaged, plundered. Anybody can just walk all over us. There was a day when we were mighty and now we're the laughing stock. And they're lamenting the loss of God's powerful protection. The boar from the forest ravages this vine. They, anybody that wants to feeds on it. So the final verse of section three is verse 14. Turn. Not turn us. You turn, God. Turn back and put your arms around us. Protect us, O God of hosts. Which is a reference to God's army. That word host is about, O God of the angel armies. Would you look down from heaven? Would you see us? And then the phrase here is, tend the vine. Would you give attention to us? Clearly, you have pulled your hands off and just said, anybody that wants to have their day with this people, I will let them walk in all over them. And that's precisely what they did. And that's what's being lamented. Fourth and finally, look at the last section, verses 15 to 19. They've lamented the loss of God's leadership. They've lamented the loss of God's listening love. Thirdly, they've lamented the loss of his pervading, powerful protection. Lastly, they're lamenting the loss of his personal presence. Verse 15 says, The stock of the vine that your right hand planted. And then notice the way we go from vine imagery to a person, a singular son, S-O-N. And for the son whom you made strong for yourself. This is essentially a reference to the king. The king that would be the representative of the entire nation. You have chosen a son, and that son is the one who would bring about protection, power, have the right hand of God at his disposal. But instead, instead of the son ruling with might, they've burned down Jerusalem. Assyria's wiped out the northern kingdom. They've cut it down. They've cut down the vine. The people are perishing at the rebuke of your face. So there's that personal presence. Instead of it being a smile, it seems like a frown. And your hand on the man that you've given your right hand, verse 17, the son of man, and that's just a phrase that means a human. Don't, don't read too much into it. The son of man is just a Hebrew phrase to say there's a human. There's a singular human that you were going to give power to. And that human would be the one by whom you would make your name great. So we want to call upon your name that you would give us life. So restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. All right, friends, that's my attempt to summarize for you part one of this sermon. They're lamenting. They've lost. This is the historical context of probably the northern kingdom already being ravaged, plundered, Ten tribes already decimated, and then Assyria is marching down to the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom is ready to be destroyed. And so they're praying, God, think Hezekiah, the king of the southern kingdom, save, deliver. That's my best guess as to what's going on historically. But do you see, regardless of the historical setting, they've lost a lot. But the most important thing they've lost is God. They've lost his presence. And so I just want to ask before we move on to part two, repentance. Because this psalm teaches us about repentance. 
I think you should use the Psalms when you experience loss. I think Psalm 80 exists to teach you how to pray, how to think, how your emotions should be governed by the word of God as it relates to the practice of lament. So it could be a lament of the loss of a loved one. It could be the lament of the loss of your job. It could be the lament of the loss of your reputation. There's all kinds of things that we experience as individuals, but it could be the lament of the loss of God's personal presence. I know some of you have confessed from time to time, I feel like God is distant right now. Psalm 80 would be a great place for you to use when you feel like God's hidden from you. That's why we sang earlier that song, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Do you know that you can turn to God even when it seems like he's far away? And so that's just more personally, but corporately, notice that this is us language throughout the psalm. This is a corporate psalm. This is a psalm that's used for prayer and worship for an entire group of people. Have you ever lamented the loss of a church that's closed down? Have you ever had to lament the loss of a church leader that had to be removed? Have you ever had to lament the loss of close friends who you love dearly that have walked away from Jesus? Embassy Church, these are relevant words for us. We need Psalm number 80 and book three of the Psalms to teach us how to lament, words to pray when you don't have words to say, and how to deal with loss. It's inevitable. You're going to experience loss. And for some of us, the acuteness of losing the personal, powerful, protecting presence of God it can be debilitating. And I think that Psalm 80 could be a very important help for you. So that's point one. This psalm exists to teach us how to lament. But that's not all it teaches us. It teaches us how to repent. That's the key word actually in our psalm, isn't it? The repeated refrain, the verse 3, verse 7, verse 14, verse 19, it's actually all the same word in Hebrew. And so here we are. Hebrew school, boys and girls. The word is shuv, not shove, but it might be a helpful kind of word picture for you. Shuv, like I need to be shoved in a different direction. I need to turn. It's the word repent. If you've ever heard the word repent and you're not familiar to the Bible or Christianity, the word repent is to turn. That's its basic meaning. And what we're seeing in this psalm is that they need to turn away from themselves, away from idolatry, away from worldly wisdom, and turn to God. That's precisely the prayer they're asking. And I think that we can learn from this, not just how to lament when we have loss, but that ultimately we need to turn to God. And if there's one simple takeaway is that if you want to learn how to lament, It needs to not just be complaining to God and say, oh, that felt better. That was like a little verbal vomit that just came out right now, and I just feel so much better. That's not precisely what lamenting means. Yes, that happens. Like, they're complaining. They're getting off on their chest the deep feelings and and, and sense of, of what's going on in their soul. But more than that, they're turning to God, and they're asking God to turn to them, and they're praying and hoping and trusting in him, which is why they're turning. 
So it's one thing for you to go through a difficult season of your life, experience deep emotional loss, and then share that with a friend and feel a whole lot better. I think that that's helpful, but there's something even more helpful for you. Not just spilling out your soul, but turning to the Lord in a prayer of trust. God, restore what's been lost. I trust you. I trust you will answer this prayer. A prayer in faith that leads you to trust in the midst of loss. That's what lamenting's about. And that's precisely what this psalm is doing. So let me just make a few observations about this, because I think this is extremely practical for us. In each of these sections, I think you got different lessons to take away. Section one, they lost God's guidance. So to repent is to turn back to God as their shepherd and seek him for guidance. Brother or sister, if you're a Christian and you call yourself a believer in Jesus, I think it should be obvious to you that you should trust not in your own understanding, but in the supreme wisdom of God's word. So we should, as Christians, be reminded regularly to turn to God for wisdom, precisely his word. It's part of the reason why we go through books of the Bible as a church is because we don't want to hear Phil's wisdom because he's so smart. We want to hear from God. And I will serve faithfully as your tour guide if I continue to point you to God and his wisdom. But it's not just the Bible. It's also the collective group here that's sitting around you. The guidance that God gives is supremely found in the word of God, but we need one another to rightly interpret the Bible, and that's why some people are pastors and teachers and some are not. That's why there are those who have been Christians for 30, 40, 50 years and have experience that you do not. And that's why the local church, the people of God, should help one another to sense and understand the wisdom of God. So I want to plainly give a few examples. Are you about to take a new job that's going to force you to relocate to a new area? Have you consulted the word of God on whether or not that would be wise? Perhaps the Bible doesn't say very much, but have you asked anybody that you trust that loves Jesus? Hey, what do you think about this? Not, hey, I'm going to do this. Tell me that you're happy about it. Those are two different conversations. Have you ever had somebody say, hey, I'd like to meet with you and tell you what I'm already planning to do. And then it's like, well, this isn't a conversation versus sitting down and saying, do you really think I should fill in the blank? Just this week, somebody asked me, hey, would you help me sit down and think through, should I consider getting married to a specific person? I think that's great. The church exists to help us apply God's word specifically, intentionally. To submit ourselves to a local church and become church members is about growing in wisdom together. So don't just sing the song, shepherd, he leads me, he guides me, but you live as an individual who's self-reliant on your own interpretation of scripture and your own understanding of the world around you. You need desperately a community and that community can help you. And if we, as a community, are checks and balances with one another, I believe the spirit of God brings us in unity together for making the biggest decisions of our lives that will affect the trajectories of the kingdom of God or the local church or your individual life. So in summary, if you would like to learn the lesson of repentance, have God become your shepherd, your guide. I want to follow you, God. What, what does that look like, Pastor Phil? I just told you. Consult the scriptures, consult the people of God, and third and finally, consult the spirit of God after steps one and two. What does your conscience tell you? 
If you're a Christian, we believe that God will guide you through the Spirit, but he doesn't just do that with a feeling first. He does that after the confirmation of, is anything you're doing unbiblical? Is anything you're doing kind of blindsided by you're not thinking through the whole scenario, so then you have the whole church to help you think through it? When steps one and two happen, step three is I'm going to submit to the Spirit as he has guided me through the Scriptures and guided me through counsel from other church members, and I'm going to follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That's what I think it looks like for us to turn to God being our shepherd, leading us like a flock. Secondly, turn. Turn to God in not self-centered prayers, but God-glorifying prayers. Is it possible that even for you as a new covenant Christian, that God might do this to you? I'm not listening, la, 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 la. It's a terrifying thought that you might be praying and heaping up prayers and God's not at all interested in what you have to say. It's like, I just wasted 10 minutes, 30 minutes. Was this whole church service a big waste of time? Or can we have confidence that what we were praying, God was listening? And the answer is, we can know. And in the New Testament, there's two specific examples you should be thinking of. First, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells us, when we pray, we should not just heap up words so that we look good. Putting on a show, guys, look how great I pray. Look how many big theological words I know. I hope that at the end of the service, you all pat me on the back and say, Pastor Phil, that prayer was awesome. You're a great prayer. The more that that's your motive, the more that Jesus condemns that form of prayer. And I would think that would be a good example of a self-centered prayer that God has no interest in. But there's another form of prayer, and it's in James 4, and it says that God is not listening to your prayers when you ask something for the wrong motives, which begs the question, well, what's the right motive? Just submit to the master. Jesus Christ already told us that all of our prayers, as we saw last week from Psalm 79, should fall under the banner of not my will, but yours be done. May your kingdom come. May your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That's what praying a God-centered in the name of Jesus, according to the will of God, prayer looks like. And you have promises from Jesus himself that when you pray in my name, in accordance with my will, I will hear you. Bank on it, Embassy Church. This is good news. You could pray knowing that God will never shut you out and close his ears. How encouraging is that? To know that you could spend hours and hours of prayer and that God is hearing every single word. What's the qualifying lesson to learn? As long as you're not praying ultimately about your will, your purposes, your dreams, your goals, but about God's honor and glory for the good of the world around you. When you learn to pray God-centered prayers and ask in the name of Jesus, that's why we say that phrase, by the way, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's to help instruct us and remind us this prayer is about the name and glory of Jesus. Do you see that even in our Psalm, verse 18? We will call upon your name. All prayer is ultimately about the name of God. And finally, the last lesson we learn about repentance is that we need to turn away from self-salvation projects to God's powerful protection of salvation. Notice that the way this psalm says, especially from verses 8 to the end of the psalm, restore us, O God, that we would be saved. Turn, God, so we would be saved. Tend the flock. Verse 19, restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine, that we would be saved. Now, naturally, the first reading of this in its historical context is salvation from a threatening army, the army of Assyria or Babylon. 
But there is a deeper, broader message of salvation throughout the Bible. Not just physical, earthly, temporary salvation. Eternal salvation from death. And so if you would learn to turn in this first and foundational sense away from your sins, your idolatry, your rejection of God, and saying, I don't need God. I'll just lean on my own understanding. It is fundamentally necessary in order to be a basic Christian to turn from self and embrace fully all that God has provided for you in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we do not come offering full hands. Look what I did, God. Here's my resume. Went to church, prayed a lot. I prayed good prayers too. Served the soup kitchen, went on a missions trip. You guys know your religious resume? Self-salvation projects must be turned away from, not relying on your own efforts and strength, but allowing God to save you through his kindness and grace. Notice the way verse 8 says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. Did the slaves in Egypt save themselves? Pharaoh, let's stick it to the man. Revolutions from the bottom up. We're going to save ourselves. No, you did this. You brought us out. You drove out the nations in the book of Joshua. You cleared the ground and you deeply rooted us in the land. Notice that God is the one bringing about salvation in the old covenant and the great act of salvation from Egypt. But Jesus Christ himself says that in a much, much greater way, salvation from the slavery of your sins, I will rescue you out of bondage and I will bring you into a land flowing not just with milk and honey, but no sin ever again, no death, no more tears. That's the salvation that's being referred to when we read the Bible in its fuller, broader context. So Christian, note that you're a Christian because you've turned. If you're here today and you're a child and you've grown up in church, we're asking you to think about your life as one that would turn away from anything that would make much of you and make much of your hopes and dreams and turn to God's purposes. This is what it means to initially become converted. Some people even translate this word shuv as conversion. It's, it's, it's the turning away from self-salvation to the salvation that God alone can provide to bring in the vine, drive out the nations, plant and grow. Turn, look, see, tend to this vine. Last little lesson before we move on to our third and final point. Is repentance an act that you are responsible to do? Or is repentance an act that God does for you? The answer is yes. Notice the way that the prayer is God turn us. Turn us. They're dependent upon God's ability to turn them in their own hearts, and their own community. We need you to turn us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, there's even this line that says, when you're preaching the gospel, do so with gentleness because you never know who God might grant repentance. Grant, like a gift. God's involved. That's kind of the whole point of the prayer. God, would you turn our hearts? I think it's a fitting prayer, actually, for the first time in your life. God, I want to admit that I'm a sinner. I want to admit that I have not chosen to submit to your guidance and your counsel and your wisdom. And I want to pray that I, I need to stop relying upon my own self-salvation efforts and religious activities. And I want to turn to you. So help me. Turn me, God. But notice the other 
interesting twist in our psalm. Verse 14, God turns. Now, it would be inappropriate to think that God's repenting from sin, but it's the same word. God shoves. He, he turns away his anger or his back. I, I think it's really like you've got a married couple, if you want to picture it this way. This is fitting. It's, it's the way the Bible describes God and his people. When Alice came up, she read for us, my beloved, in Isaiah chapter 5. The vine is his beloved, like a husband and wife. And the idea is that they would turn to each other. You know how at a wedding, they walk down the aisle and they turn to each other, they hold hands and they speak vows to one another, promises. And then you celebrate it with a climactic kiss. They're, they're intimately united toward one another. The picture here is that the bride, the people, have turned away to other lovers, other gods. Therefore, it's not so much that God is looking at them and say, ooh, you're ugly now. I'm turning away from you. It's that because they turned away, they need God to turn back to them, and they need to turn back. It's, it's not a one or the other. Don't pick and choose between whether or not God's involved or you need to responsibly respond to this sermon with repentance. It's both. If you repent, it's evidence that God's responding to our prayers for repentance. We don't need to have arguments and discussions about whether or not God's sovereign or man is responsible. We can just say, amen. Turn us, God, and turn to us. But here's the good news. Third and finally, this is a prayer not just about learning how to lament loss or requesting how to repent. This is a prayer that is fulfilled in the face of Jesus Christ. I wanted to rhyme all of them, so at one point I was like, lament, repent, assent. It, it does work. But here's my fulfilling my promise from 10 years ago. And I don't think this one's very hard. Is Psalm 80 ultimately a prayer that's fulfilled and answered by the ascension of Jesus Christ? Amen, it is. Section one is about, oh God, would you shepherd us? Would you lead us like a flock? Does anyone have any Bible verses coming to mind yet? Do you know a, a son of man, a human, that led the people of Israel, a Jew, one from the tribe of Judah, a king who would guide his people and call himself the good shepherd? I am the good shepherd. John chapter 10, if you're not familiar with the New Testament, is where I am alluding to Jesus came to the earth. The great son of God, the one that God had chosen, who would have his right hand, the son whom you made strong for yourself, verse 17 says. Well, that wasn't just any ordinary king. There would be one king whom God would make strong for himself. He would give him all the authority of his right hand. And this son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself, he will be the one that will rebuild the vine that is the nation of Israel. So when we fast forward from John chapter 10, we get to the passage that was read by David earlier in the service. I am not just the good shepherd. I'm the vine. And if you would abide in me, if you would turn to me, if you would find all of your hope and life and love in me, then you will bear good fruit. And that fruit will go above the mountains, down the valleys, to the rivers and the seas. It'll spread to every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is what I mean 
by the ascension of Jesus Christ through his death on a cross, when he was lifted up, he would draw all men and women to himself. This is John 12, 32. And through that beautiful demonstration of self-sacrificial love, he was buried into the ground and he went all the way to the place of the dead to raise a new humanity out of the grave. And then when he is seated at the Father's right hand, he now has all authority in heaven on earth. And he commands us to make disciples of every tribe, tongue, and nation by baptizing them into the vine that is Jesus Christ. Do you see what I mean? The good shepherd is Jesus. The vine, the true vine, is Jesus. The son of man, the one son who has the right hand of the Father, is Jesus. Psalm 80 is about Jesus. If you would turn, not just to God, generally, turn to God in the face of Christ and let him guide you. Let him guide you with his sweet words that he says in Matthew chapter 11, 10 and 11. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Turn to him. Trust him. Trust that he is good. He has wise words for you and that you would want to obey everything that he commands. Turn to him for protection from not just earthly enemies, but the greatest enemy of all, sin, Satan, and death. He's conquered it. It's over. It's finished. It's done. Turn to Jesus. Turn from your sins and find your Savior Jesus as the only one who is worthy of everything that you have in this life. Forsake all. And instead of coming with a resume, say as we sang just last week, empty hands I bring simply to the cross. I cling. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. We want to pray for the glory of your Son, Jesus. We want to ask that your name would be hallowed in every corner of the earth by disciples of Jesus who would turn from their sins, not just once, not just twice, but every day, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Lord, I pray that today's sermon would be an encouragement and instructive for us to turn to Jesus Christ. Behold his face, glory in his majesty. Be thankful for his sacrificial love, his fulfillment of all the promises and prayers of the Old Testament, including Psalm 80. Oh, Father, would you draw us to yourself as we gaze at your beauty, the beauty of a God who would hang on a cross innocently and pray for us, Father, forgive them. Help us to see that enemy love as not just a truth to believe, but a person to submit our lives to. We pray that you would do this and much, much more in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.